The modern Republican Party has traditionally been viewed as a defender of free markets and of the capitalist system. But recently, especially in the last few months, its defiance of free market principles has become especially brazen. Notably, this has included attempts to regulate big tech and to interfere with private business employment decisions, especially on the state level. Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we're going to discuss this topic, the new Republican attacks on economic freedom. My name is Ben Bayer. I'm a fellow and instructor at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me is a senior fellow, my colleague, Ilan Jono. Welcome, Ilan. Hey, Ben. So, Ilan, to kick this discussion off, we should talk a little bit about that traditional view of what Republicans, especially under the guise of being conservatives, are supposed to stand for. The natural question I think anyone should ask when they hear someone else describe themselves as a conservative is, well, what are you trying to conserve? And at least for a, a long time, I think, especially during much of the 20th century, it, it was plausible to view Republican conservatives as defenders of free markets and of capitalism because they could plausibly answer the question, what we're trying to conserve is the original American system of individual rights, which is the, the principle that uh, underpins the capitalist economic system. And I think that was even more plausible to the extent that, especially in the middle to late 20th century, the conservatives were some of the chief critics and opponents of communism, both abroad and the spread of socialist ideas at home. Um, how do you think that plausible, that plausible view uh, gets updated in later 20th century and now moving into the 21st? I think it, it is plausible to many people who are listening to the sound bites and the slogans. And I think it's important to put it in those terms because I think the deeper you go into what conservatism stands for, the less plausible it is. But let's just take us the perspective of someone just listening to the news or reading the Republican National Committee's platform in a given year. So let's look at the 2016 platform, which was the same one they used in 2020. They decided not to update it. And here, I think you see the Republican uh, Party as an outgrowth of conservatism. I think it's, it's important to see it that way, that it, they use the word freedom. They really try to associate themselves with freedom and liberty. And if you, I just did a rough count. I, freedom shows up at least 40 times in the document, the, the platform for 2016. Liberty shows up, I believe 20 times or more than 20 times. So this, this is a, a thematic point that they keep stressing whenever they're talking about it. And if you read the platform from 2016, one of the things it says is that the constitution is a quote, enduring, covenant. And they also say, and this is a, a direct quote from the document, quote, we believe political freedom and economic freedom are indivisible. When political freedom and economic freedom are separated, both are in peril. When united, they are invincible, end quote. Now, this is, so if, if you're listening at it just at that level, it's, it's, it's understandable why you would think conservatism and particularly the Republican party is the party that stands for freedom. They talk about it, they, they beat you over the head with it. But the question is, is there really a connection here? Is it substantive? So Ben, I mean, how do you think of that issue? 
I mean, that's a, those are really good lines from the platform, which if they had the right thinking and the right reasons behind them, they would be profoundly true. Uh, the idea that there's this intimate connection between economic and political freedom. I mean, the reason that we need political freedom, and if, you, if by that you mean something like the freedom of speech and the freedom of assembly, is because you need that kind of freedom to function as a rational being, to, to speak, to think. And the reason that we need that kind of freedom is not just because our thinking is an end in itself, it's because uh, we need to live according to our thinking. We need to act on the world in accordance with our best judgment of the best way to live, to pursue our happiness. And the reason then that there's a connection to economic freedom is because what distinctively human life requires in the world is production and trade, the production and trade of physical goods. We and we need freedom in that realm, in the economic realm. If we want to be able to explore the limits and the value of our ideas of what makes for a better life, because we're not ghosts, we're integrated beings of mind and body, and the ideas that we have need to be implemented in physical reality. The only way to do that, to test out our ideas, to see how efficacious they are uh, with regard to our happiness and our survival is to build things in the world. And to do that, we need to be able to test out our ideas, we need to be able to negotiate with other people on a voluntary basis. That's what the freedom of production and trade is. And this idea that therefore there's this important connection between political and economic freedom is a really crucial idea. It's an idea that Ayn Rand herself advocated uh, in an important uh, part of her essay for the new intellectual. She says, reason requires the right to think and to act on the guidance of one's own thinking the right to live by one's own independent judgment. And she says then, intellectual freedom cannot exist without political freedom and political freedom cannot exist without economic freedom. And the famous line is, a free mind and a free market are corollaries. So to the extent that various conservatives and Republicans have uh, gotten close at least to recognizing that connection, that's been good for them. But uh, Elon, you recently published an article through New Ideal talking about Ayn Rand's analysis of the modern conservative movement, where she's seeing it develop in the 60s going through the 70s and the 80s, uh, in which she argues that conservatives don't live up to that ideal. They have, that they're increasingly betraying free market principles. Uh, could you say more about why she says that uh, when she does? I think the essential issue in her mind is that to defend freedom is to, to found it, to establish it, to base it on a philosophic foundation. America has had freedom, but that foundation was precarious and it was being eroded. And anyone in the present day who is trying to really defend freedom, and, and she took the conservatives as people who were trying to do that. And in her view, they were not providing a rational foundation for freedom, a philosophic foundation. In fact, the arguments that they did offer, in her view, were contrary to that. They were under, further undermining freedom. They were basing it on the kind of views that we hear today, religion, tradition, and an argument about the depravity of man, which I think is another expression of a religious perspective. So in her view, it was an intellectually bankrupt movement, conservatism. Already, and this was she's writing in the 1960s, so that just, and I think 
by the time you hear her talking about it at the very end of her life in the, her final talk where she deals with uh, the conservative movement, this is called the age of mediocrity. And she's speaking in the shadow of the Reagan administration which has just come into power. And by that point, her view is, I, in effect, she had been warning that religion was creeping into conservatism and becoming the dominant strain. And by the, the early 1980s, she's saying, this is exactly what's happened. It's become, they've let in uh, religionists and they've empowered them in the movement. And this is a problem. This is not at all, this is incompatible with defending freedom. And in fact, she shows in that talk, which people can hear online, exactly the ways in which if you're, if you're advocating for freedom, but doing it on the basis of religion and the morality of altruism, morality of self-sacrifice, it's impossible to defend freedom. And so her analysis was, was really damning of the movement. And this goes, and you can look at different time slices. I, I mentioned both the 1960s and then later in the 1980s, and her view develops over time. But I think her view is that it's an intellectually bankrupt intellectual movement. I think that's reflective in the politics that flows out of conservatism and that feeds into the Republican Party. And so Ben, I want to throw it back to you. Take us to the present on this. Yeah, and it's it's worth looking at the present in the context of that development that you just noted. I mean, she goes from in the 1940s actually supporting and working for the Wendell Wilkie campaign to promoting Goldwater, but then coming to the view, well, he wasn't that effective because of his ideas, to then all the way in the 1980s saying, don't vote for Reagan because his ideas are going to be destructive of whatever was good about the conservative movement. And you know, it would be a, it would be a miracle if over the course of that 20, 30 years, the trajectory didn't continue further in the worst direction that she was indicating, given that there haven't been fundamental changes to the basic moral ideas that have propelled the Republican Party. And I think you can now, you can now see where that trajectory has led today and in, in most recent years with the, the rise of the Trump administration, uh, which is uh, uh, where we saw a pronounced antipathy to freedom of trade internationally, uh, more support for protectionist uh, barriers to trade, uh, opposition to freedom of movement of human capital, which is an essential part of free trade, in other words, opposition to immigration, and all of this under the aegis of so-called national conservatism, which is now, you know, which continues to uh, be promoted by the likes of Tucker Carlson, where the idea is that the previous conservative movement's emphasis on free markets and individual rights was, was uh, corrupt, was inadequate, we need to adopt a more collectivistic, nationalistic approach, where we're looking at, uh, you know, the the nation as a whole, not, uh, and and, and de-emphasizing this need for economic freedom. Um, ben, can I can I challenge you something? I think someone listening to sure. this would, would reasonably ask. So we get we get that you're critical of the Republicans, but turn to the other side. Is it are you really saying that? Why are you spending time criticizing the Republicans when? There's so much to criticize of the Democrats and even more so the progressive liberal side of the intellectual landscape. So what, how do you respond to that? It's a perfectly good question, uh, especially when you look at what the Biden administration has been up to as of late. I mean, they're trying to pass a multi-trillion dollar budget uh, to uh, you know, basically 
uh, expand the welfare state and uh, in other all kinds of other departments are cramping down clamping down on economic freedoms notably especially the biden uh antitrust policy under the lena khan ftc now we've had a lot to say about that uh, we've we've done a number of podcasts on on biden and his economic policies and we're definitely going to say more we are also cognizant of the fact that there are plenty of other people who are capable fully capable of uh, critiquing what's going on in the biden administration but there are very few people who are willing to critique republicans and their policy and their administration from the perspective of individual freedom and free markets especially those uh, people who are guided by the uh, proper philosophy which recognizes that the root of economic freedom is the is individualism and the value of the rational mind. Uh, so we continue to maintain vigilance on this, on uh, calling out the uh, assault on the free market by both sides of our political culture. And it's, it's time to do that again, I think, for the Republicans, even though they are not currently in power at the national level, because there are places where they do retain power, where they have incredible influence over people's lives. And that's in the states where their anti-free market intentions, I think, have come out into the open in, in a particularly clear way in places like Texas and Florida. And today we're going to talk about various state level policies in Texas and Florida where uh, those intentions have become clear. And it's, it's important to look at these as bellwethers because uh, states like Texas and Florida, where you have popular governors, uh, Governor Abbott and Governor, Governor DeSantis, end up serving as kind of policy labs for future national Republican policy. We're talking here about the push by the leaders of the Republican Party. We're looking at the intellectual trends among the leaders and criticizing and analyzing that. This doesn't imply criticism uh, of anyone who ever wants to vote for a Republican. There can be reasons to do that. Uh, especially when you consider the alternative of Biden. Uh, but we have to maintain vigilance here uh, against the major flaws on both sides of this uh, political spectrum. I just want to add to that. So again, our focus is on the idea, the philosophic issues underlying what we're going to talk about. So this is not a uh, any kind of endorsement or, or opposition to any particular candidate. We're not interested in standing for or against candidates. That's not what we're here to do. As and as Ben said, it's not about who you voted for, and it's about the trends and intellectual uh, substance that is manifested by the kind of policies we're going to be criticizing. So, Ben, let's start with the mandate and the so-called controversy. I mean, it's a controversy, but this is so—I think it's so called in the sense that this idea of a of a, a vaccine passport and the idea that the vaccines have been mandated and, and the developments in Texas and Florida on that. Why don't you give us sort of a thumbnail of where we are? Yeah, we need to we need to really get down to brass tacks now what the what the different Republican administrations at the state level are actually proposing and actually passing and doing. And the first big uh, heading here is what they've been doing with regard to vaccine policy at the state level. Now, it's important to revisit the fact that in a previous podcast, uh, we discussed ARI's opposition to government vaccine mandates. I think we've, we've done a lot of commentary on the vaccines themselves, had to say what's, what's good about them, but a vaccine mandate is, is, still, uh, is still a 
antithetical to individual rights if it's done by the government, if that's what you mean by a mandate. Ayn Rand herself was also opposed to government forcing people to get vaccinated against their wishes. And uh, in the time since we did that podcast, something kind of like a vaccine mandate came to pass at the federal level. The Biden administration uh, didn't mandate vaccination as an exclusive option for employers and employees, but it did say employers have to require either vaccination or a negative test if the company is greater than a certain size, or at least they're, they're proposing that they're going to do this through uh, OSHA regulations. And I mean, that's, even though that offers a certain choice, it's still a choice they shouldn't have to make. Employers should still have the freedom to opt out of either of those if they think that it's not necessary for the kind of business that they're doing. Uh, even so, all that being said, and given our opposition to that federal policy, one of the other things that uh, Elon, you and Ankar stressed when you were discussing this topic on that previous podcast, is that there is an important and fundamental distinction between a government mandating something like vaccination or complex of other things related to vaccination and an employer making vaccination or some other health procedure a condition of employment. Do you want to expand a bit on that? Because I think that's, that's the distinction that's key to our evaluation of the Republican policies we're about to discuss. I agree. It's key. And it's, it's one way in which this whole uh, issue has become really blurred in people's minds. Because the key term he amended, and you said if that's how you want to use it, or I'm not sure exactly how you phrased it, but you kind of qualified it. I think it's critical. There's a philosophic issue here, which is this term has, it's used to combine two very different things and that you would have to evaluate each of them differently. It's bringing together something uh, that is coercive, so by the government. So a mandate, I think, strictly is something the government tells you you have to do. You can't walk away from that. It's backed by government coercion. There will, there's a whole mechanism by which it's enforced, and there's penalties for not complying with a mandate. That's, that's coercive. That's, I think, uh, inherent in it being a government requirement. And it's critical. You, ca you can't say no to a mandate, essentially. That's one kind of thing. That's what, what I think is reasonable to call out a mandate. Now, if your employer, my employer, the Iron Institute said to me, you cannot come back to work from the pandemic unless you're vaccinated. And that's a condition of employment. This is a fact of how, where we are. Then I have a choice. I can say, okay, I'll get vaccinated and I'll comply. Or I say, no, this is too important. I, I have other reasons. I don't want to do this. And we part company. I, I go my way. The institute goes its own way. And we're free. No, no one's harmed in the process. No one's coerced. So it's a voluntary issue. And that's, that's the critical distinction here. So what the government is telling you to do is, is coercive. And what an employer offers is, here are the terms of trade work for us and these are some of the conditions just as i can't just show to work show up to work we have a dress policy i can't show up to work in t-shirts and shorts and sandals even if that's what i'd like to do it's a condition of employment that i wear business attire when i come to work now that seems like a trivial thing but if you put it in the category of these are conditions of employment do you understand well no i actually do want to go to work like that that's so important to me well then go find a job where that is one of the things that you can you can do and that's, I think, the essential here is that when employers are in a position to say, 
just as they can, I mean, the terms of your employment include your compensation, they include benefits or no benefits, they include the kind of, do you get computer equipment given to you or not given to you as part of your employment, you have to supply them. There's thousands of ways in which your relationship with an employer is governed by an, a mutual agreement and that you can walk away from. And the same thing goes for a restaurant. If they wanna require you to show proof that you have been vaccinated, it is with entirely within their rights, just as they can say, no, you can't come in if you're if you are a nudist, just take a really random, crazy example, and you're a nudist and you want to come into my restaurant, you can't come in. Or you we we don't have you we don't have children in this restaurant because we, we find it brings down the atmosphere, it just makes people uncomfortable. This is just a grown-up restaurant. You have to be 18 or older. It's not because of alcohol, it's just we think it creates an interesting vibe for people who want to come here. That's totally reasonable. And, and you could also have unreasonable requirements that you want to go to a restaurant. They say, no, you, ha you have to come with a special hat. Just crazy things or only people with tattoos can come. So you can walk away. Don't go to that restaurant. Don't bring your kids. Find somewhere else to eat so that you can always walk away. Now, I, I'm belaboring the point because I think it's important that people get how sharp a contrast this is don't want this condition for your employment, don't want to go to this restaurant, it's not a fit with your values and your priorities. Whether you are right or not, it's not relevant. What's relevant is your mutual relationship, your voluntary trade with either the employer or the restaurant or the shop or whoever it is you're trading with. You can, you can part ways and find someone else to trade with or, or not, be ostracized or however it works out. But when the government tells you, you must do X or otherwise, the or otherwise means you're going to be punished. There is going to be penalties and they, who knows exactly how they cascade up. So when we talk about mandates, we should be talking only about that case of government coercive action requiring you to take certain steps. When we talk about an employer or a business relationship, that shouldn't be called a mandate. We should talk about that as a condition of employment, a condition of trade, or then maybe there's a term of art in, in law. I'm not sure how, how to best capture it, but let's not call it a mandate because it's not true. The employer is not coercing you. The employer is telling you these are how this is part of how we want to trade. Take it or leave it. Yeah, and this I think this this distinction between coercive mandate and terms and conditions of employment is super important from a philosophic perspective. If we want to go back to the reason why freedom is important in the first place, if the reason why economic and political freedom are important is because they enable the freedom of the mind to choose its course of action in the world. Uh, allowing an employer to set the terms for when uh, he's going to continue to employ certain people is crucial for that very thing. It's crucial for that very freedom. Your ability, it, it, it gives an employer the ability to plan their business, to plan what kind of people it's going to uh, bring into its business and interact with, whether customers or employees. Uh, an employer needs to be able to be free to, to exercise his or her judgment of when certain relationships promote their business ends and when they don't. So just to take, I think, what's the most obvious example of this if we're talking about vaccine mandates. If you are a company that runs a hospital and you, according to your best medical judgment, have decided that it is not conducive to the health and the sanitation of a hospital to have unvaccinated employees walking around the hospital all the time. Uh, that is your right to decide that. And if there are people working for you who are not going to contribute to that central economic goal of your hospital, which is to promote health, uh, you need to have the right to part ways with them. 
Uh, you might even decide that if if these people working for you are supposed to be health professionals, and they and you don't think they have they are themselves are exercising good health judgment uh, in their personal health decisions, that might be a reason to think. Well, maybe these aren't the people we want working at our hospital. Now, you might be wrong about that. You might other people might justifiably criticize you. They they think your medical judgment is wrong, and some of the people who work for you might say, uh, "I don't agree with you," and they might quit and want to work someone somewhere else. That's their right too. But then the question is, who's given the question of who's right or wrong here, how are we gonna find out who's right? Well, one way you find out is let the people who don't want to get vaccinated go and start up their own hospital. The nurses and the doctors, they can, they can work for a hospital where they allow unvaccinated patients. See what happens. See if more customers will go to the vaccinated hospital versus the unvaccinated hospital. That's exactly what a free market is for. And I should just mention by way of a, a sidebar here, because I know there are people who say, oh, the only reason that the hospitals today uh, are deciding to have vaccine mandates is because they've been forced to by the government. Uh, and there certainly are a lot of government controls over, over health policy that, are, that, that, that interfere with intellectual freedom in lots of ways. But if you think that in a free market, in a fully free market for healthcare, there wouldn't be hospitals who thought that vaccination was needed, was necessary for their employees. I think that's crazy. If you, if you really think there's nobody who can use their own best medical judgment to think that this is an important thing, that's, it's beyond the pale as far as I'm concerned. You're detached from the news here. There's plenty of people who their, you know, use their best medical judgment to think that. Yeah, and it's worth just one other point on this because I, I know we, we want to get to the situation in Texas and Florida. Another perspective to take on this, if you are, I don't know how many people have ever run a hospital. I certainly haven't, but I can imagine that one of the things that you'd be worried about in a pandemic or even just in a flu season, never mind the COVID pandemic, how many of my staff are going to be out of commission because they get sick? And it's so much better if, if the flu vaccine in a given year is 50% effective, let's say. That's so much better for you in terms of staffing and the fact that the hospital capacity is not, you know, 80% of your doctors are out because they have the flu, they can't work, or your nursing staff are, are taken down by the flu, or in this case, COVID. It's a serious issue. And, you know, we've heard a lot during the pandemic about hospital capacity and the whole idea behind flattening the curve, that whole push that we were uh, told about ad nauseum, it was primarily about hospital capacity. Now, a, a factor in hospital capacity is personnel. And if you're a hospital administrator and, and you're facing the question, well, how am I going to be able to assure that enough of my, my staff are here? Well, one of the ways you would do it is to immunize them against what is going around in flu season or in the case of a pandemic or other diseases that you know are infectious and that can be uh, prevented with vaccination. Because you certainly don't, there's, there's a whole perspective that you mentioned, Ben, about what does this mean for their medical judgment and how they treat patients and the health of the patients, but just in terms of staffing. And I think this redounds to other businesses like restaurants and, and so forth. It is a huge advantage if all the teachers at your school, all the wait staff at your restaurant are immunized from this uh, infectious disease and other diseases, including the flu that happens periodically. So, I mean, I think there are lots of good sound business reasons why you might want to do this and that you might form this judgment. Uh, and I think that I really wanted to line the point you were making. This really is an issue of leaving individuals and business owners 
free to act on their best judgment in conducting their business and in conducting their, their voluntary uh, trade with other people. And, and that's really, that is what I think we, this, this really is the pivot point to go to, to Governor Greg Abbott, what he's doing in Texas. Um, so you're living in Texas, Ben. <laughs> Um, and you know, you've been following this. So you've, we've been talking about this and, and just, uh, looking at what's going on. So I'll just mention a couple of things and I want to hand it back to you. So uh, Governor Abbott has been on this path of resisting uh, the idea of so-called, and I'm going to put mandates in scare quotes to indicate that, again, this is the term that's being, that's packaging together things that are dissimilar. Uh, so he passed, I think this was uh, an executive order in April, which prohibits any private entity from receiving state grants or contracts or any other tax disbursement from requiring a vaccine documentation. So a lot of the way these things work is the government can't or doesn't always want to go out and tell you, uh, a private business, you can't do X. What they do is they say, well, you can't be a beneficiary of government contract, which for many businesses just means you, this is going to control what you do. Uh, and again, he did this uh, something similar in July, where he said that any private entity, with the exception of nursing homes, that receives any state money, so think about Medicare, Medicaid, all sorts of contracts and so forth, from requiring vaccination as a condition for receiving a service or entering the premises. And then I, there's another one in, in August, uh, and this is, I think after the vaccines were approved by the FDA as no longer an emergency use authorization, I think I've got the dates right there, but but actually approved. So which which means that you're in a better position if you're requiring your staff to take them because it's not an emergency issue anymore. It's fully validated. So take us to the present, Ben. What's the latest thing that's happened under this progression from Governor Abbott? Yeah, so I think the the series of executive orders you just mentioned is the buildup to the latest. And the latest, I think, is, is really the most brazen, the one that's the most obviously in conflict with the freedom of association and uh, as, a, as an expression of economic freedom that we've just been discussing. And, and this is executive order GA40, which he released on October 11th. Uh, now, interestingly, in the, in the early part of, of the order, all the whereas clauses, he cites the Biden administration's vaccine mandate on workplaces as uh, uh, something to be concerned about as, as you know, what he's reacting to with his order. And he's right to be concerned about it for the reasons that we've discussed. But let's take a look to see what his reaction is. And we can put up on screen the key passage from this executive order, GA40. Uh, Abbott says, no entity can compel receipt of a COVID-19 vaccine by any individual. And if we can put that up on screen, it'll help. Uh, no entity in Texas can compel receipt of a COVID-19 vaccine by any individual, including an employee or a consumer who objects to such vaccination for any reason of personal conscience based on a religious belief or for medical reasons, including prior recovery from COVID-19. Now, the, the best, though not very plausible thing that I've heard in defense of this move is that it technically doesn't say that private employers are forbidden from making it a condition of employment. It just says private entities can't compel 
their employer, their employees to get these vaccinations, which I guess is technically true from a philosophic perspective for the reason that we've just been discussing, because in fact, conditions of employment are totally separate from an actual uh, government mandate. But that's not the way that anybody is interpreting this. Nobody's interpreting this as just a statement of fact. They're interpreting it as, as a mandate against uh, employee-employer conditions. Um, and that's, for example, if you look at a state press release that came out announcing this executive order, the title of the press release is prohibiting vaccine mandates by any entity, public or private. And one other th thing that I think really reveals the true nature of this executive order is that toward the end of the order, Abbott says uh, that I'm only able to mandate this for the duration of the current health emergency. All of these executive orders have been under uh, the auspices of this uh, emergency power that he has. And so he's cognizant of the fact that once that order is, once that emergency is lifted, he won't have the power to ban this anymore. And so he says, I strongly encourage the legislature to implement my executive order in law, at which point the order will become null and void. And the, the legislation that the Texas legislature was trying to pass to do this for him was explicitly prohibiting uh, vaccination as a private uh, as a condition of employment is explicitly putting it in terms of this is a form of employment discrimination that is that is to be outlawed now as interestingly that legislation has not moved forward just as of yesterday the session ended and it didn't get passed which is itself interesting because it's it's i think maybe reveals that the the legislature knows that they are to do what he wants them to do would be to impose quite a burden on private businesses uh, and and maybe they don't want to do everything he wants them to do. Um, so it's this is quite a drastic move on his part, and I think um, pretty obviously at odds with free market principles, pretty obviously at odds with freedom of association. Uh, you know, one of the things I read over the last few months from people who I think would describe themselves uh, certainly not as Republicans or conservatives, but just critical uh, of this. One of, and this is a very minor point, but one of the things that re uh, Republicans have long emphasized is local control, power to the states, and local control meaning, and ultimately going back to the slogans about freedom and, and small businesses, it's remarkable how blatantly this is at odds with the idea that if you value small businesses, if you value freedom, then why are you taking away from employers and businesses the ability, or are you at least restricting them and in effect creating the conditions under which you're effectively preventing them from doing this? Why would you do that? And why would you arrogate to the governor powers that, if you really believe in freedom, belong to businesses? So I mean, to me, this is a betrayal even of their, uh, some of their more um, conventional slogans about power and localization as opposed to, you know, we're not listening to the federal government where state powers and small businesses are all that count. We don't, we don't care about big businesses. To me, this is a case of, well, did, do you ever listen to yourself? Like this is really what you said when, <laughs> in the past and here you are telling all these small businesses how to conduct their, their operations. And I suppose that they that supporters of this bill could could object to what we're saying by saying this is all just in opposition to Biden's vaccine mandates. And if it if he hadn't done this, this never would have been necessary. But of course, it is still important to remember that 
Biden didn't exactly mandate the vaccines. He mandated vaccines or the negative tests. And the reaction in any case is not to say, no, uh, we're going to engage in some kind of civil disobedience and our law enforcement simply won't enforce the Biden mandate. Uh, instead, it's a, it's a new prohibition. It's, it's saying companies do not have the right to choose how they deal with their employees. Uh, and it doesn't say this, this policy will be lifted if the federal mandate is ever lifted or if the federal mandate is uh, overturned in court, which it could well be. And then if you take a broader look, beyond this policy in Texas to look at what other Republican administrations are doing in other states, you see that the, the true nature of it emerges, that this isn't just a reaction to Biden, that it's their own agenda. Uh, in, in Montana, for instance, that for a while now, I think even possibly before the Biden uh, decision, there's, there was a, a law passed by the legislature forbidding companies from discriminating against customers based on their vaccination or immunity status. Now, and this language of discrimination is something you, you borrow from the socialist playbook. Uh, in Florida, uh, Ron DeSantis and his state legislature put a ban on vaccine passports, uh, which is, I think, even more explicit and unconditional than the one that Texas uh, is trying to implement. The, and let's put the text of the Florida uh, law. Uh, sorry, this is, this is also an executive order, a Florida executive order up on the screen. This is Florida Executive Order 21. 81, uh, where uh, it says businesses in Florida are prohibited from acquiring patrons or customers to provide any documentation cer certifying COVID-19 vaccination or post-transmission recovery to gain access to entry upon or service from uh, businesses. So that means just an outright prohibition. And that's not even in response to some kind of federal mandate of vaccine passports. So this is something they're doing on their own agenda, uh, under their own steam. And it's, it's hard to excuse it just by saying it's a reaction to uh, the, uh, the opposite kind of mistake by the Democrats and by the Biden administration. I, I remember when this occurred, uh, there was a story about one of the cruise lines that set sail from Florida. I don't know if you caught this, and I think the penalty for violating this executive order was a significant dollar amount per, per customer. So just multiply the number of people who bought a cruise ship and that one of the cruise lines, I forget it was Carnival or Disney or one of the other major ones. For every passenger, that I think it was $25,000 or something, something really outrageous as to the, if you boarded a ship and didn't require uh, them to prove that they have had a COVID vaccine, you would bankrupt this business, or you at least that particular voyage would lose money before it even left the, the port. And this was challenged in court uh, by by the cruise line. I think it's Norwegian. But cruise line, Norwegian, yeah. I'm glad. Thanks for the correction. So this is a case where you're telling a crew. Now think about going back to the beginning of the pandemic. One of the places where COVID spread rapidly, and we, we found out about it, is there was a cruise ship and it was heading back to a US port and the Trump administration didn't want to let it uh, uh, pull up uh, at the port. So we know that cruise ships are particularly vulnerable to the spread of infectious diseases based on experience, this is not speculation. And here the Florida executive order tells a cruise line, you cannot verify that your passengers boarding the ship are vaccinated, which is a, a very minimal level. It's not 
asking them to test if they're carriers even. It's just, have you been vaccinated? And uh, to me, that that is, that's reckless. I mean, if, if I were running that, if I were the captain of that ship, I would not want to leave the port because what's going to happen when you allow people on and you don't know their status, you don't know what you're, you might be creating a real hazard. And this is a, I think a blatant case of how by imposing these controls, it's, it's a direct violation of the freedom of the companies involved. And, and just peel back one more layer of their judgment. So how safe is it to board this cruise ship? And think about yourself as a customer. Would you board this ship knowing that nobody else, nobody on board was asked to show whether they're vaccinated or not? Do you want to take that gamble? Would you board that ship? You might just tear up your tickets and say, no, money's sunk cost. I'm not going to do this. This is too risky. Or you might say you would, but it should be up to you and the cruise line to decide what terms of the, uh, of the voyage are going to be. And there might be people who are comfortable with that. And many people I think will not be. And it's up to ultimately the cruise line that has to make that decision. And that multiply that, but all the different businesses that are now affected by this and be, being in effect dictated to by this executive order. So your judgment to hell with it. I mean, that's what this is about. It's interesting how the Republicans on, I mean, you mentioned before that they, they've had a lot of rhetoric about the importance of uh, yeah, private control, local control, uh, but that when there's an issue like uh, like the vaccines that are lightning rod issues that have divided people along uh, culture wars lines, they're totally willing to throw out whatever kinds of lip service they've paid in the past to free market principles uh, in, a, in an effort to what looks like just gin up uh, uh, political uh, support by their base. And it really shows, I think, uh, that these political principles were, are not sincerely held, that that they're willing to throw them out just for you know, tribalistic reasons. Um, but we should, I think, move on to another big example, Elon, because it's not just about vaccine policy. It's, it's now we look at a totally different policy realm uh, and that's similar uh, kinds of anti-free market decisions that have been being made in, again, both Texas and Florida, this time with regard to social media uh, and tech company regulation. Uh, do you want to start by talking about Florida? Yeah, we'll just take one step back before we get into the media, social media's quote unquote censorship ban from Florida and from Texas. What's interesting is that, so part of the argument we're making is that this isn't isolated to the COVID vaccine and the, the so-called passport issue. And I don't think it's, it's limited to what we're going to talk about now, which is the social media passport. This is a trend. And I think part of Part of the evidence for that is it isn't just Texas, it's Texas and Florida. And then as we'll see in a moment, there are other states that are following in this path. So this is a, a pattern, I think, that you can establish that this is in direct violation of freedom. So the, the whole idea that uh, this political movement or phenomenon is in favor of freedom is I think it's, these are not isolated cases, they're high profile cases, but they're not isolated. And there's a definite pattern here. And I think there's other things to say about Texas and Florida in terms of where they stand and their governors and where they stand within the Republican uh, uh, party and so forth. But let, let's put that aside. Let's get into the social media censorship ban, which I think, so the Florida ban, I believe it was the first in the nation. 
and it came into effect in July. And the, the basic issue was it gives a, a user of a social media platform of a certain scale the right to go and sue the, the company if, it is, if it, the user believes themselves to have been quote unquote censored. And it's interesting how they define censorship because this is a, a very broad uh, uh, term in, in the documents. If you read uh, SB, I forget what it is, SB 7072, uh, it's interesting to read these documents. And for anyone really thinking about these things, go and read these executive orders, go and read these uh, draft laws and, and laws as, as they're passed. So the idea is if you think you've been, uh, uh, if you're being, if you've been quote, censored by one of these companies, which could mean that your posts don't get as much visibility or that they're quote, shadow banned or that they're demonetized or deprioritized. There's a whole list of things that are seen in the law as quote unquote censoring. Not all of them literally you haven't been able to speak. It's just you haven't had as big at a platform in some cases, or you, your voice hasn't been heard by as many people. But not in every case is it even the true that what you say is just deleted. That's, I mean, that is part of what they think of censorship, but that's not all that they think of it. So just notice that that how expansive a term censorship is in the way they're defining it, which is really ominous. Now, that's one point to say. The other thing that the law provides for is that the, the state can also sue, and the state, as part of this process, if it, it wants to investigate a case, it arrogates to Florida, and I use that term deliberately, arrogates the power to Florida as a state to subpoena any algorithm, quote, used by social media platforms related to any violation, uh, any alleged violation, end quote, of, of its own policies or of this, of this law, Think about how social media works. Practically every major platform lives or dies by numerous algorithms. What you see on your newsfeed, Twitter feed, how your friends are suggested, how people, you know, what you like on a certain platform and what you thumbs up. All of that gives you different results as you interact with these platforms. So just imagine how, how outrageous it is to go to a company where the core of their business, the core of the value that they generate that attracts people is a set of algorithms, a lot of code, a lot of math and really smart people creating it. No, we're gonna subpoena whatever we want, any piece of code, any algorithm that the state believes might be related to a particular case of someone complaining of quote censorship. Now you're basically telling these companies, you have to open your doors to us completely. We get to decide what we look at. And I mean, it's hard to find an analogy for this because it's so brazen and so, uh, it's such a power grab. I mean, I was thinking the closest thing that in terms of the value at stake is if you went to Coca-Cola with its legendary secret sauce or secret recipe that is kept in a safe and only seven people know about what's on that list. And it's on a, you know, there's this whole legend around the Coca-Cola recipe. And it's, under, it's understood because this is part of what makes the company successful. This is, the, this is Coke. This is what people buy and love and so on. Imagine going to Coca-Cola and saying, yeah, we get the, you violated the, this executive order. We need to see what's on that list. We need to know what's in, this, in the secret recipe. Do you really think this is what a government's role looked like if you are in favor of freedom? And I would say, I think that question answers itself. There's nothing in that that suggests any respect for 
property rights, for intellectual property rights, for the freedom of companies to make decisions and, and run their operations as they deem best. So this is the Florida case. And, and one other thing I'll just mention briefly because it comes up in, in the Texas case too, which is there are requirements for the companies to be more transparent. And again, transparency here is I think a, a, a term that needs to be unpacked, but basically the companies are required to disclose their decision-making. And so if somebody has been evicted from the platform or suspended or their, or their account has been seen in violation, the company has to disclose all of the, the logic and, and, and decision-making behind that on a regular basis. And then to, to articulate all of its rules and processes. And again, that is a business, I regard all of that as proprietary. That is telling someone, we need to know how you do business. Well, no, there could be good reasons why they don't want to disclose that. And this is what the law is telling them to do. Now, all of the, and I, my guess is that as soon as a company has to do comply with these sorts of disclosure requirements, that is going to open them up to even more cases because people will use that. So these are in effect, um, if you were thinking strategically as someone trying to grab power, what benefit would this be to you? Well, it opens up these companies to ever more lawsuits and you're, you're burying them in court cases for years to come as a result of this. Now, I'm, this is not to say that if there's wrongdoing by these companies, they shouldn't be investigated and so forth, but that goes to the heart of what this idea of censorship is. And I think that is really, and I wanna hand it back to you, Ben, but I've been calling this idea of censorship, I'm putting it in scare quotes. This is nothing like what censorship is. I think we should unpack that because I don't think you can count what's in these laws as censorship as actual wrongdoing. Yeah, and this goes back to the discussion we had at the top about why freedom is important. And I'm really glad that you highlighted the part about forcing them to disclose their algorithms because making them do that, it really illustrates why, uh, and, and the, Making them do that and the negative consequences of doing that, which you just discussed, really helps illustrate why freedom is important to begin with. I mean, part of the reason why they want these algorithms to be disclosed is because they want to enforce new restrictions that they're imposing on these companies uh, with regard to default prioritization of certain posts. So, you know, when you're on your social media feed, you don't see everything come out in the order it's posted. There's certain things that are judged to be more important that are put to the top that you see first. Uh, and they want basically it to be very easy for someone to opt out of that. And uh, on top of that, they also want to ban any kind of deplatforming of any political candidate or any journalist, which is, which is I think, the most, uh, the most restrictive thing that they want to do. But think about what this means. It means that if a company decides that it doesn't want to give uh, priority promotion to some kind of pro-Nazi or pro-communist, for that matter, political candidates or journalists. It doesn't have uh, the right to do it. It doesn't have the right to kick them off the platform. Uh, and if it decides that it wants to stop a, a pro-Al-Qaeda newspaper from being on the platform, it can't do that. It has to give them an equal platform. And the thing to emphasize here is that the founders of these companies who have to make, I think, very difficult decisions about what they're going to prioritize and what they're going to support uh, do, do so because they have a certain vision of what they, of, of an idea of what kind of conversation they think is worth promoting. N none of these companies, for, as, as far as I know, 
uh, are saying if you, you only people with a certain viewpoint are allowed to be on our platform. Now there probably are some companies that do that, but they're not the big ones. All of them have a certain view of what they think edifying civil discourse should look like. And they have to make decisions about what are the allowable limits of debate? What are the allowable range of viewpoints that are going to be included in this conversation? They have views of their own, but they want these views to be discussed. That's why they've created a social media platform. But in the kind of policy that we're seeing here, we're seeing governments saying, we don't care about your ideas about what good discourse looks like. We're going to insert our own kind of discourse. And you know what I've just said is not saying and is not implying that the different social media companies vision of what good discourse looks like is correct. It might be completely wrong. They might have the completely wrong standards for who they're allowing into a conversation, who they're not. I suspect in some cases that they have the wrong standards. Pretty sure that they have the wrong standards. And, uh, in, in a number of cases. But the point is, how are you going to show them that they're wrong? How are you going to actually create the right alternative? It's not going to be by forcing their hand. It's not going to be by saying, no, now I'm going to make you host this pro-Al-Qaeda newspaper. Now I'm going to make you host this Nazi political candidate. The way you do it is by setting up another platform. It's somewhat you use, again, the free market. See what happens. If you set up a platform where there's no censorship of in their term of any kind, where anybody can say anything they want, uh, regardless of the vision of discourse adopted by the founders, see what happens, see how many people go to that platform. Uh, or, and it, and it might be that some people go, it might be that not too many people do because they share the same kind of vision of the founders of, of the, the rival platform. And one last thing I'll say about this, the, the fact that it bans any deplatforming of any political candidate that right there is, is a sure sign that what we're looking at is a naked exercise of political power. They, the people writing these laws have to be political candidates. They want to strong arm their way into getting free campaign publicity. Uh, and it's as simple as that. There's, there's no even plausible free market rationale uh, for what they're talking about there. But we should also take a look at how this is happening in Texas, and, and uh, unless you have other things you want to say about Florida first. No, I think it's good to connect it to Texas. The, the idea of, you're reminding me of the idea that uh, pre preventing candidates from being uh, removed is the deplatforming of any candidates. I think there's, there's what you said, I, I think that's on, I agree with that. I think there's another aspect here which is important. And I want to just unpack for a minute as we talk about Texas this idea that social media companies are quote, censoring anybody by either deplatforming them, banning them, removing them, demonetizing them, deboosting them, restricting them, or denying them access to various tools on the platform, or even discriminating against them by whatever decisions they make. So I've just given you the whole, the whole spectrum and it's not even exhaustive of what counts as quote, censorship under the Texas law. And I think the important thing here for anyone who's, who's concerned with freedom and individual rights and who values those things is to ask yourself, what actually is censorship? And, and do any of these things done by whether Facebook or Twitter or some other platform, do they actually counter censorship? Or are they part of the voluntary terms of, of trade? And it's not even trade because it's a free service, right? Uh, in both cases, but it's just the terms of use. I think the important thing here is that Free speech and censorship, what, what, do those, what do those actually mean? So 
free speech means you have the right to find and, and pay for and use a platform or a room or a hole or a megaphone on land that you have the right to, to use and to speak. In other words, no one owes you the platform or the megaphone or the hole or the printing press or, or even uh, uh, use of an internet platform or email, whatever it is that you're using. No one owes you that, but you're, you're free to go and find that acquire the right to use it, and then speak your mind, whatever it is you want to say. That is, in, in essence, free speech. You have the freedom of action to go and find the means to you, to speak what you want to say, or make a film, or draw something, or some work of art. And censorship, is a it, it, it falls under government action. It's something that governments can do, and in the paradigm case is the government censor reads or looks at a movie before it's released and decides, yeah, this can go through, this can't go through, or make these edits and then it can go through. And if you look at the way full censorship in its, in its paradigm form is actually practiced under authoritarian regimes, dictatorships, how it was practiced under the communists, that is a lot of how it worked. And even before that, that is basically, it was pre-release pre review by the government and they dictate what can go and what can't go. And, and it's, again, it's compulsion. It's, there's no walking away and finding another publisher if the government says you can't publish this. It's not an issue of you and your publisher. It's an issue of the government granting you the, the, free, the, 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 the privilege of publishing as opposed to the right of you doing so. So censorship is what governments do. It's backed by coercion and you can't walk away from it. Think about what we were talking about in connection with the vaccine uh, passports. You can walk away if your employer says this is a requirement. If the government says you can't publish this article, Ben, you can't teach this class, you can't give this lecture, you can't do it. I mean, you can violate it and then you'll be punished. So this is important to get that censorship is inherently wrapped up in coercion. When you go on Facebook and you publish something and they choose not to boost it, or they decide, yeah, we're not gonna monetize your video on YouTube for whatever reason, whether it's they disagree, whether the algorithm decides this is boring, whatever the reason, that is not censorship. That is their decision about how you as a user get to, to operate on their platform. And this is exactly what the Texas law completely inverts. So the Texas law says, in effect, and I'm translating this into English, you're, you, the large social media companies are required to provide a platform for people. And if you, if you choose to, quote, censor them, unquote, then you are violating their rights. So in effect, it's saying to someone, the equivalent would be, you as a newspaper are required to publish this article. You as a, a the owner of a movie theater or a regular theater are required to host this play, whether you like it or not. And, and in effect, you're taking away their judgment, you're taking away their rights, you're stripping them of that. And it's, in, it's creating this false view, both of what censorship is and what free speech is. It's, it's, you don't have free speech. It's, it's not part of your free speech to demand the Facebook not block you. That is not part of your free speech. You can go and find another way to communicate, but you, if Facebook decides this is not what they want, you have to find another way to do what you want to communicate, to find another avenue for doing that. So again, I think just like, the, the key term and the issue of the vaccine man, uh, uh, mandates and the passports is the, the, a lot of it rides on the confusion about mandates. Here, I think a lot of confusion, and I think it's, it's manufactured and multiplied by these laws, a lot of confusion rides on this idea of censorship and of what free speech is. So I think they, there's no real understanding of free speech. 
And there's an expansion of governments in power over these companies who they do have free speech and it is within their rights to block you and, and prevent you from doing these things. So I think part of what I find really ominous and alarming about this Texas bill is that it strips away from companies their right to operate. And yet it leaves it with the appearance that they are private and they do have this freedom. And, and the way to think about a scenario like that is this is fascistic. This is leaving the facade of private ownership, but taking away control and fundamental ownership and the right to, to make the use your judgment and how to operate. And I think that is part of what's so, so scary about this. And it's coming from people who are couching all of this in terms of freedom. And we've got up on the screen the language from the Texas law regarding what censorship is in their view. And it's it's interesting to look at that because it given that it's what the law is doing is banning censorship, you see the whole range of things here that it's that it's supposed to ban. Censor means to block, ban, remove, deplatform, demonetize, deboost, strict, deny equal access or visibility to or otherwise discriminate against expression. I mean that's a lot. And one thing that I find striking is the, the really anti-economic uh, perspective on a ban like this, because what it does is stops people from thinking of social media platforms as businesses. How do social media platforms operate? How do they fund what they're doing? For the most part, they sell advertisements. And advertisers care a lot about what kinds of things their advertising is appearing next to. Uh, part of the reason why social media platforms decide to de-platform or de-emphasize certain kinds of content is perhaps because they don't agree with it or they think it's too controversial with certain people in their audience. But another part of the reason they do it is because they think that their advertisers won't like it. And to say, no, these, these companies, they need to provide a platform for everybody, but uh, shouldn't care at all about the people who are actually footing for the bill for it is a supreme manifestation of the kind of no free lunch attitude that the, the conservatives who at one time claimed to be in favor of the free market were always bemoaning. It's a kind of welfare state approach to the way that social media platforms have to run. And as I think you mentioned in conversation, Elon, that one of the other things that this uh, legislation or that this uh, yeah, this legislation does is to is to treat social media platforms as so-called common carriers. And you've just now mentioned that this is a kind of step on the on the road to fascistic control of these of these entities. And it's you can see that in this in this way of treating them as common carriers. They're not businesses who need to make a living, who need to try to find a way to provide value for their customers who are advertisers. No, they're just to serve the needs of the demands of uh, the political class in this case. Um, there's one other could... thing yeah. Go ahead. Uh, that I, I just wanted to point out about this law, which is the, the absurd way in which it, it restricts its ban only to social media platforms that are above a certain size, only above 50 million users, which means that the smaller companies are allowed to de-emphasize and de-platform and ban whoever they like. But if that's 
if, if all these kinds of things really are censorship in their view, if they really are some kind of violation of free speech rights, it wouldn't make any sense at all to say, oh, it's okay for small companies to violate people's rights, just not when the big companies do it. And I think that gives the lie to the idea that this uh, really has anything at all to do with people's violations of rights, that it's, it's a political ploy uh, to get power over the big platforms who have the most value to offer. I wonder if we should take some questions. I, I haven't looked at what we've got so far. I just want to make one final thought, share one final thought about the, the Florida law. So I mentioned that it went into effect in July, but it was immediately uh, blocked. I think there was a, a countersuit by either directly by some of the big uh, social media platforms or by some of some sort of industry group. But it, as soon as it came into effect, it was blocked. And it's now in the courts and we'll see when and how this plays out. But one of the things that happened after it was blocked, and this speaks to the idea that there's a pattern here, a number of attorneys general banded together, including the attorney general of Texas and nine others, so 10 in total, to write a friend of the court brief, an amicus brief, in support of the Florida law. And in effect, they're saying, we disagree. We think this should be enacted. We, we object to this being blocked. Uh, and every single attorney general signed on to this amicus brief is a Republican. So this is, it, 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 it's clearly something that is going through the Republican party, the conservative movement as an issue. This is something that they really care about. And if we've been arguing that to take seriously freedom you would not approach any of these issues in the way that the Republicans have been approaching them. It's completely contradictory. So to me, this is, this is not just Greg Abbott. This is not just Ron DeSantis. This is the, the, uh, their attorneys general and then the attorneys general of 10 other, or nine other states involved here. So this is a significant pattern and a trend. And that's the point I wanted to emphasize. It's a trend, it's a real uh, uh, defilement of the, the the concept of freedom and the value of freedom and the inversion of it, because in effect, what these laws are ending up doing is requiring social media platforms to provide a platform or a microphone or, or a lecture hall for people whom they have a right to refuse, just as no newspaper should be compelled to publish something they don't agree with, they don't want to have on their platform. The same is true of these companies. And, and the, the dodge of calling them common carries is, I think, just a step toward stripping even more control and authority from the owners of these companies and the, the founders of them who have a financial stake in this property and the value that's being created. So to me, this is part of what's so ominous here is that we're seeing massively valuable companies that are so significant to our cultural life being attacked by the alleged defenders of freedom. Good, yes. Uh, I think we should now move to some questions. And there are two questions that came in from Zoom that are related to each other that I wanna, I wanna try to tackle uh, with just one answer. Uh, one question about the vaccine laws and another about social media. Um, and it might be the same person asking both of these questions, I'm not sure. But the first question is, since the government has started pushing the social media companies to restrict posts by use of the fact checkers like, the COVID con like with COVID content, does this start opening up the idea that these private companies are effectively actually, quote, censoring as they are operating under the dictate of government? 
And then uh, the related question, the second question, you need to address this issue that almost all of the vaccine requirements being instituted by, the private, by, by private businesses are because of federal government coercion. What can state governments do to interfere with the federal coercion? Uh, let me start by saying in response to both these questions is that there's a, there's a good point here, which is, that, which is that I think it's right that there have been uh, policies enacted by government and there certainly have been threats of various forms of regulation enacted by especially the federal government that have been pushing various social media companies to adopt new policies. And even when it's not official piece of legislation, if it's just a bunch of senators having a hearing saying, you know, bringing the CEOs of these companies to testify saying, if you don't fix this problem, we're going to invoke our misreading of section 230 in order to take away your liability from immunity uh, or your immunity from liability. That is a threat of force. And when companies do things in response to it, uh, I do think that there is such a thing as uh, as an indirect form of censorship, or at the very least, an indirect kind of the violation of the free speech rights of the companies and of its customers. And that has happened, and it's a real concern. And I, I, I think it's very one of the problems with the use of government force is that it becomes very difficult to decide when a company makes a decision, if they're making it because it's because of their own judgment or if it's because uh, they're reacting to some threat. And the fact that you can't tell the difference is itself one of the problems with that kind of policy and that kind of coercion. And something similar is almost certainly happening with the companies right now that are deciding to impose vaccine requirements on their employers, especially given that the Biden administration has actually mandated it or something like it uh, for all workplaces over a certain size. So those are very real things, and it's very true that therefore you can't be sure that the decisions they're making are the decisions they would have made on a free market. But I don't think anything that we've said today is meant to dispute that. What we've been talking about is how if a free market is important, if individual freedom is important, then the way to react to these violations of rights is precisely not to do what uh, these Republican administrations have been doing on the state level, which is just to reinsert more coercion into the equation. I mean, if, and the person asks, what can state governments do to interfere with the federal coercion? Legally speaking, I'm not sure, but it's not anything like what they're doing now. And I mean, the closest thing that I could, I could imagine that they could possibly do is to say, uh, because we disagree with these federal mandates, we are not going to devote any state resources to enforcing them. And there might still be legal issues with doing that. There might be questions about the rule of law, but it, it at least wouldn't be a brazen imposition of new mandates, which incidentally put the private employers and the private companies in an even greater bind because now they've got a mandate coming from the federal government. They've got an opposite mandate coming from the state government, and they're torn between the two mandates, one from the bigger government, but the other from the one that's closer to them, which just ups the level of paralysis that a private company or a private employer needs to deal with. Just add one thought to that, Ben. All of this is has to be understood as consequences of and at the same time uh, uh, feeding into the mixed economy 
the idea, this whole apparatus that we live under, which is there are pockets of freedom, but massive amounts of government intervention, government regulation, and it's encroaching now into the space which is least regulated, which is social uh, technology and social media in particular. And I think you can't really think about these until you get the sense of there are a lot of power lusting politicians vying to outdo each other. And they have the, and they're arrogating to themselves power at the state level because they want to be this, the federal power seeker and power holder. So there's a whole dynamic here of it's not an accident that Florida and Texas are leading the way. I mean, there are other states led by Republicans that could be doing this, but it's Texas and Florida, and there's ambition there. So I think that this is part of what we're seeing, that the mess that is being created here is uh, the a function of a society where politicians and, and the whole legal system enables them to go in and, and start determining what businesses should do and how they should operate and, and to the level of how you should report your policy decisions when you ban somebody from your platform, literally the details of what the report should look like. Now that is absurd. I mean, it's just that it's a function of a government that's way past the point of its proper function. And I think you, you can't really solve these things without recognizing that there are layers and layers of error and, and distortion here. Um, but let me just, before we get to, I don't know how many questions we can get to, but I want to thank everyone who's watching, particularly everyone who's submitted uh, donations through Super Chat. We appreciate your support. We're glad to have you. Glad you're enjoying and finding this discussion illuminating. Uh, should we take one or two more? I'm not sure how we I are time. Yeah, I see one more question at least that I, I would like to answer because it relates to a number of things that just came up. Someone asked on Zoom, has ARI ever faced sanctions by social media companies? And I haven't looked at our data very closely on this, but I, I can think of a few cases uh, where certain videos or certain posts that we've had have been uh, demonetized or you know, not boosted, probably because of the nature of their content, probably because there was some robot that used an algorithm to make that call. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting, thing to point out because it gets to the deeper question of why does ARI care about this issue? Because uh, someone could be thinking, well, you, your own stuff is maybe not getting out there in the way that it could if, if some of these policies were implemented. But I think it's precisely because of the fact that these platforms offer us so much value that we care about this issue, that we know that, I mean, those of you who are watching on YouTube, I mean, we're basically getting an audience of 75,000 people for free uh, that get to watch these videos on a regular basis. And we say very radical things that nobody else on the planet is saying. And these companies are helping us do that. Uh, we're saying things that I'm sure many of the people who run these companies disagree with. And these companies are helping us do that. And we've had an enormous expansion in the size of our audience and our ability to influence people with Ayn Rand's ideas because of what social media and what the internet more generally has opened up. And we also know that you don't kill a golden goose. We know that these companies require freedom and they require the ability to profit from their own decisions about algorithms in order to continue to do that. So we're doing this for very selfish reasons. And I think that makes it good. 
I think we're kind of at time, but I do want to share one anecdote, which is not related to social media directly, but it's in this space in the sense of wanting to get your message out and being denied the opportunity to do so, which is I think, the thrust of the question. So this is at the time before social media was a thing. And the Institute wanted, this is right after 9-11, we wanted to publish a full page advertisement in a newspaper. Uh, we were able to do so in the Washington Post, the New York Times, they accepted the ad. The one that refused us and that we, we challenged, the refused was the Wall Street Journal. And we wrote to the, I forget who it was, it was the editor in chief or the head of the opinion page. And we challenged them and we said, this is, this is, we don't agree with this. And we don't want to understand why you're refusing to take a paid advertisement uh, with this content. But we recognize that that's entirely within their rights. And if we objected to it, it would just be on the basis of, well, we, we disagree on this content, but certainly we would defend their right to refuse us. And I think that's the essential here. So you have to recognize that this is an issue of, of we've been talking about freedom, but specifically this is the right of the creators and the owners of these businesses. And as you put it there, they're hugely valuable. And in the pre-social media space, newspapers were massively influential. Having a newspaper, a full page ad in a newspaper was a big deal 20 years ago. It's not a big deal anymore, but being on a social media platform obviously is sort of the equivalent of that. So to, to me, the issue is we've always been for the principle of individual rights. We we're always will be. And that is what we're, uh, we're trying to expose the betrayal of that by people who claim to be for it. And I think everyone who's watching should be reflecting on that and, and really thinking deeply about how is it that that's happened? And I think there's a, there's a philosophical story to tell there for another time. Good, well, I think we should start to wrap up. So let's start with some resources that people can take a look at if they would like to learn more about some of the ideas that we discussed today. We started by talking about the conservative movement generally and its portrayal of free market principles. A uh, source text to take a look at here is Ayn Rand's essay from the 1960s, Conservatism, an obituary. That's online at ARI's website. You can go there directly if you go to bit.ly slash conservatism obit. Uh, Elon also wrote an article recently talking about Ayn Rand's analysis, her broader analysis and critique of the conservative movement and its betrayal of, free, of the free market. Uh, and a piece he wrote for New Ideal called What Was Ayn Rand's View of Conservatism? You can go to that directly at bit.ly slash AR versus conservatism with AR in capital letters. Uh, also on the topic of the uh, social media quote unquote censorship that we've been talking about today, uh, I've got a couple of ideas, uh, a couple of articles in New Ideal that shed further light on this topic, on why what social media companies can do is not censorship, why they should have the right to do it, and why even when they're operating under government force and threats of force, uh, the way to deal with it is not to uh, make them wards of the state. Uh, one article I wrote was ominous threats to the marketplace of ideas. That's at bit.ly slash ominous threats. And also Facebook censor or victim. That's at bit.ly slash censor or victim. Uh, one last item is I, I referenced uh, at the beginning of the conversation that there was an earlier podcast on the topic of vaccine mandates and why we oppose them. That was a conversation between Ankar Gatti and Ilan Giorno called Vaccine False Alternatives, Bribes Versus Mandates. That's on our YouTube channel. Thank you, YouTube. And you can go there straight at the bit.ly slash vaccine hyphen bribes URL. Uh, thanks to Bitly for that one. Um, so 
some announcements about what's coming up next week. Elon and I will be back uh, to talk again about the issue of uh, calls for uh, regulations on tech companies. In this case, we'll be commenting on the recent calls to regulate Facebook because of claims that it is addictive uh, to teenagers and the like because uh, of revelations from a whistleblower, Francis Haugen. Uh, topic of this one will be when whistleblowers blow smoke, recent attacks on Facebook. This will be next week, Wednesday, October 27th. So stay tuned for that. If you liked what you saw today and would like to be able to follow us on these social media platforms that are providing their services for free, the way to do that is to go to our YouTube channel, uh, subscribe to our channel, click that bell button to get notifications. If you're watching the recording of this, consider liking the episode, commenting on it, sharing it with people. Uh, so that they can get an idea of what we've been discussing today. It helps optimize those 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 uh, algorithms we've been talking about so much today so that we can get more attention. We're growing our YouTube uh, past 75,000, hopefully to 100,000 soon. Also on Facebook, if you're doing the same thing, watching us there, you can like, you can comment, you can share. And as always, if you have any questions about issues that came up today, or you have ideas for future episodes, you'd like to suggest a topic, send us an email at newideal at einrand.org. We check every email that comes in, read it all, reply to many of them. Sometimes we even do topics that have been suggested by our audience members. So thanks everyone for joining us today. Thanks Elon for having this conversation with me. I will see you and everyone else next week uh, for more on that other topic. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.